Good morning. Well, I think it's the first time I've ever done a good morning. I got zero. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. There we go. That makes up for it. Well, if you're new or visiting with us, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Church 21. Uh, I specifically serve as the executive pastor, which means I oversee the legal, financial, and organizational health of our various congregations and ministries, as well as provide some pastoral care for our team. Uh, normally, I gather in the South Shore uh, congregation with my family, but it's always awesome to be able to come and be downtown with you guys here. Uh, we are in a series titled Sextember, which is maybe not something you would expect. If this is your first time, I apologize. Uh, we've had people come and they're like, oh, okay. And they're like, do I stay for this? Um, it's something that we do, usually we do it every other uh, September. Uh, but we decided, and we did it last year, but we decided that we wanted to do it again this year because there were some new topics that we wanted to address. And so over the last three weeks, we've looked at the origins of sex, uh, sexual abuse. Last week was poly, uh, dealing with open marriage, polygamy, uh, polymory, that kind of range uh, of, of subject. Uh, the reason that we do this is because we the culture has quite a bit to say about sex and sexuality, and we want to hear from the author and creator of sexuality also, because we can only get authoritative information about sex from the author of sex. And so this is why we do this. And today we are wrapping up our series. Uh, we're focusing on the subject of digital and virtual pornea. What does that even mean? We'll get into that. And as was read for us uh, by Evan, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 39 today. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, you can just kind of leave it open there. Um, and if you don't have a Bible and you would like to have a Bible, you can just raise your hand and someone will bring you a physical book, a, an actual Bible, and you can take it home with you as, as our gift. We want you to have that. All right. I'm going to pray for us again, and then we are going to get to work on this. Papa God, uh, we thank you. Uh, for the opportunity to gather in the name of your son, Jesus. Jesus, we gather here um, with you, that your presence uh, is with us where two or three are gathered in your name. We're doing this. We know that you as our king and as our savior and as our treasure are present here with us, um, leading us and guiding us as a good shepherd. We thank you for this. Um, and we know that you, you come here uh, in part by your spirit. Spirit, we welcome you to do your work that only you can do to change our hearts, to make us more like Jesus. Uh, the world desperately needs you. Help us to be faithful and true uh, lights and reflections of your perfect image, your perfect glory. And we ask that uh, we would experience that uh, even now uh, as we go into your word, uh, that you would illuminate it for us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you're on our prayer team and get the weekly prayer email, you already know about this. But a couple weeks ago, um, our son, we have three teenage children. Our 17-year-old son, Benjamin, had a biking accident and hit, the, hit his face and wrist against the ground at like 25 kilometers per hour, like really hard. And um, uh, we're not sure why, what happened. He has a bit of a memory gap in there. There were no witnesses. Um, and he's okay. Thank you for your prayers. If you've been praying for him, they put some teeth back in his head and the dentist is like, there's almost no chance of them living and yet they live because God is good and he makes things whole. Um, one of his injuries though was a rotational fracture in his right wrist 
and um, they had to reset it by hand. If you've ever had a bone reset or watched this happen. Uh, and so as parents, we had to watch them prepare to give our son a shot of fentanyl. And this made us nervous. We're like, is this necessary? Is there something else you can use? Because fentanyl is a scary drug. Uh, oxycodone, the active opioid in Oxycontin, uh, is, let's say, about 50% stronger uh, than morphine, according to the internet. So stronger, but not like a lot stronger. And yet, it killed so many people, if you're aware of like the opioid crisis, as people abused those drugs that can kill you. Fentanyl is a purely synthetic opioid that is 100 times more potent than morphine. So it's not 100%, that's not double, it's 100, up to 100 times more powerful. It's 50 times more powerful than heroin. Um, and it is now the face of the new opioid crisis because drug cartels are like sprinkling just a little bit of fentanyl into street drugs, into fake um, prescription drugs. You're like, you know, you've got your little Adderall pill. Um, they, they put a little bit in there. Uh, to give it an extra bump. It makes it a more popular product, but also makes it incredibly dangerous. So a pub, little public service announcement. In the last year, as the DEA is seizing these things, six out of 10 of these pills that they're finding have enough fentanyl to kill you. So if you don't know where the pill is from, even if it's like a prescription pill that you should be taking, can I bum an Adderall? Do not do that anymore. It is no longer safe to do that. All that to say, um, of course, a doctor administering a microdose of an opioid for a specific purpose in a controlled environment is very different than sending someone home with a bottle of like ultra heroin to self-administer and self-regulate. But it's still a scary thing to watch your child, although he's big now, he's like my size, but still it's like your child and they're like injecting directly into his veins something 50 times stronger than Heroin. Our impulse as parents, even as human beings, you see someone who's about to try out opioids is to slap the needle out of their hand. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Once you get into this, it's very, very hard to get out. And he's fine. He's not a junkie. He metabolized it really well. He's out for like 60 seconds and they pull. I had to look away. The rise of pharmaceutical opioid abuse very much mirrors the rise of biological opioid abuse in, our, in the Western world. These are the naturally occurring uh, opioid chemicals that are already in your body and that are released during uh, sexual activity, both moral sexual activity, immoral sexual activity, such as what Dwight spoke about. If you caught sermons one or three in this, in this series, um, you can go back and, and catch those on our podcast if you miss them. Um, but it also uh, happens when there's immoral sexual activity or sexual immorality, and that's going to be our primary focus today. Synthetic opioids are amazing, are wonderful, brilliant things when they are used within the narrow, narrow bands of which they are safe, like when they're about to do surgery and cut you open, and you're like, give me, give me the stuff, right? Knock me out. I don't want to be awake for this. They're very good, but they're an absolute horror, when they're abused. And the same is true of the opioids that are naturally in your body and that are a part of the sexual experience. Super great if you follow the manufacturer's instructions. But if you go off-label, if you're familiar with this term, when you, there's a label on the bottle, be like, please use in this way. If you're like, I'm gonna use it my own way, you go off-label on the instructions, you are abusing 
the drugs. And people do this with sex, that they go off-label with sex. They don't follow the manufacturer's instructions. And we have a myriad of different examples of this in our society. According to scripture, poly, open, homo, pedo, sado, these are all off-label uses according to scripture, which is where we find the label from the maker, the creator of sex. And this is why, again, we do the Sextember series. Because if we are to pause for a moment and look at the label on this thing called sex, we have to go to the Bible. So it sort of falls to the church to be like, okay, let's unpack this. Let's talk about it. What does the Bible have to say about sex? And so we do Sextember. Now, last year during Sextember, I was tasked with preaching about uh, pornography. And uh, if you missed that, again, you can scroll back really far in our podcast feed uh, to like a year ago. And uh, I am not going to repeat myself today, but I will quote myself a couple times because of the relevance. This is a bit of a broader topic that we have. But during that sermon, I went to great lengths to sort of introduce and illustrate this relationship between um, the sexual opioids and, and drug abuse. A lot of times people say, oh, if I'm addicted to pornography, they see it as like this, it's a sexual immorality issue. Yes, but it is also primarily a drug addiction. It needs to be treated like a drug addiction. So one brief quote from last year. Here's what's happening in your brain when you watch pornography and involve sexual activity in some way. Endogenous opioids are released, which during sexual activity provide pain relief and a sense of transcendence and euphoria. So think opium, but naturally produced by the body. Opioids form the chemical base of codeine, fentanyl, heroin, morphine, and others. So like using drugs orally, intravenously, inhaling, um, sexual activity, both moral and immoral, releases these opioids into our system and other chemicals that are stored up in us for God's good purposes, right? That they were there for God's good intentions for natural, morally appropriate situations. However, Sexual immorality allows us to access them in illicit ways, almost to break into the medicine cabinet of your brain and like mix a bunch of pills together. That during illicit sexual activity, sometimes other chemistry is spiked into the experience. Things like adrenaline, which increases the high, but ultimately can rewire your brain, forming deep addiction and brokenness and trapping you. Sexual sin is the one sin the Bible says harms us on the inside, in our bodies. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So sexual immorality isn't condemned by God because he's a killjoy. No fun. Don't do anything fun. No, it's as a loving father, he doesn't want us to destroy our bodies, our minds. Just like I, as a father, don't want my kids to destroy their bodies and minds with drugs or the drugs that can be accessed through sexual immorality. None, you know, setting aside all of the other p- potential consequences of sexually transmitted infections and, and unwanted pregnancy and all of that. Therefore, we should flee it, as Paul writes. And no Bible story does a better job of illustrating this than the one that was just read for us in Genesis 39. If you came in a little bit later, you missed that. Uh, But you can look in Genesis 39, and we see the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And you can turn there. Uh, We'll look just at part of it, since we already had it read, starting partway through verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, 
And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused. And he goes on to say in verse 9, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Skip down to verse 11. And so one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house. He fled. So Joseph's a single guy. He's not married at this point. He's working in this, in his master's house. He's coming in. It's this place where he's got his desk and he's doing his stuff. But there's also this woman here, this lonely housewife in a sense. And it's, some people suppose that um, her husband might have been a eunuch because he worked in the Pharaoh's courts. It was common to castrate those guys. They didn't want them getting fancy with the Pharaoh's many wives or concubines or children or whatever. So they would just kind of nip that in the bud. Um, but we don't know for sure. He may have just been really busy. He works a lot. He goes to a brothel. We don't know. She may have been a little bit feeling um, neglected. And usually we we read this account with primary sympathy towards Joseph, as we should. He is the one who is being sexually abused. Uh, That the level of harassment and non-consensual nature of what she was trying to draw him into uh, rises to the level of sexual abuse, as according to the sermon we had a couple of weeks ago. We don't know for sure the exact nature of this, but we suspect that he never, she never probably actually touched him until she grasped his cloak, but she was always in his ear, uh, that he's working and she's there and she's asking him and talking to him. This account also illustrates for us what it looks like for someone to be completely consumed with lust, that she chose to set her eyes on Joseph. She sort of was attracted to him and then she just gave herself over to it, so much so that she is tormented and, and can't function. And in the historical, let's say, Christian perspective, we look at the story, we don't have a lot of pity for her. She's the instigator. And we're like, well, we got it. you know, we think of Joseph. But in the Jewish perspective, actually, they, in their sort of like history, uh, they see her in a sympathetic light, that they sort of see her um, plight as well. And we can draw this out of non-scriptural Jewish texts, just as in any culture, they have historians who are writing stuff down Non, not the Bible, but just regular uh, scriptural things. Same kind of reference materials that we would use to find out things about George Washington or um, Napoleon or you know, Alexander the Great, these types of things. And so they have a number of different books and the Bible itself makes reference to one of them a couple of times called the Book of Jasher. Who's ever heard of the Book of Jasher? Very few of you. Why? We're Protestants. <laughs> Catholic people are like, oh, yes. You know, um, and, but as Protestants, we have this weird nervousness of like, well, that's a really old history book, and what if I read it and I think it's Scripture? You're not going to think it's Scripture. Just, you know, it's not inspired. No one's thinking it's from the Bible. You read it, it's got some funny things in it, and you're like, that's clearly made up. But why read this? Because the writers of the New Testament had read this. Jesus, Paul, the other writers and teachers, they knew this material. And again, in the Old Testament, in a couple places, in uh, Joshua and Samuel, it makes reference to this, as it is written in the book of Jasher. Jasher not being a name, but being a word, meaning upright or correct, meaning we're like, we're just trying to write down exactly what happened uh, that's correct. Um, And so I actually read it last year uh, to try to bring myself up to speed. It was interesting to gain some interesting, like, background to some of these things. And they have an expanded account of Potiphar and, uh, Potiphar's wife and, uh, 
and Joseph together in this. And so I'm just going to read just a couple chunks of this. And again, this is not the scripture. Please don't send me an email. I'm not trying to preach from the Apocrypha, but just to draw this Jewish perspective into our minds. And they still use chapter and verse uh, to show where we're at. So if you're ever curious, look this up later. You can get like this by PDF online for free. Jasher chapter 44, starting in verse 22. And she, uh, Potiphar's wife, said unto him, there is no one in my house and there's nothing to attend to but thy words and thy wish. It's a little King Jamesy in the English. And notwithstanding all this, she could not bring Joseph unto her, neither did he place his eye upon her, but directed his eyes below to the ground. Notice the contrast. He wouldn't give in to even just look at her. There's nothing wrong with looking, right? For him, just, you know, she's talking to him. He could look at her. He chooses not to. He creates this space. He's, even now, he's fleeing with his eyes. Where we see her, she gives herself over to her eyes. And so she just makes herself sick pursuing him in this way to the point where all her friends are like, what's wrong with you? Why are you, you're like ill. You're like dying. What is wrong with you? And she's like, I'll tell you what's wrong with me. And so she has this party and she has them all come over and she has them, uh, you know, big feast, all this stuff. Uh, I'll jump to verse 28 and her, they give her the name Zelica. I don't know. And Zelica answered them saying, this day I shall be made known to you whence this disorder springs in which you see me. And she commanded her maidservants to prepare food for all the women. And she made a banquet for them and all the women ate in the house of Zelica. And then she gave them knives to peel the citrones to eat them. I had to look up what a citrone is. You guys ever seen one of these? It's like a cross between like a lemon and a grenade. It's very meaty on the outside. You need a knife to get in there. You know, be careful, right? So she gives them knives to peel the citrones, eat them, and then she commanded, I guess her maidservants, that they should dress Joseph in costly garments and that he should appear before them. And Joseph came out before their eyes and all the women looked on Joseph and could not take their eyes off of him. And they all cut their hands with the knives they had in their hands and all the citrones that were in their hands were filled with blood. And they knew not what they had done, but they continued to look at the beauty of Joseph and did not turn their eyelids from him. And Zelikah saw what they had done and she said unto them, what is this work you have done? Behold, I gave you citrones to eat, and you have all cut your hands. And the women saw their hands, and behold, they were full of blood. And the blood flowed down upon their garments. And they said unto her, This slave in your house has overcome us. And we could not turn our eyelids from him on account of his beauty. And she said unto them, Surely this happened to you in the moment you saw him, and you could not contain yourselves from him. How then can I refrain when he is constantly in my house? And I see him day after day going in and out of my house. How then can I keep from declining or even from perishing on account of this? Interesting, right? That's a funny story. Did that really happen with the citrones and the knives? I don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is, this is one of the ways that the Jewish people think about this story. They look at what she was going through, and she's like, this was really hard. He's a very, you know, attractive guy. That's the Jewish perspective, is that apparently Joseph was so attractive that it was like a real problem to have him around, right? And um, you're like, well, can anyone be that attractive? Think for a moment about his great-grandmother, Sarah right? Remember what happened? Twice in her old age, her husband denied being married to her because he was so worried about him being murdered so that she could be brought into a harem, right? Like in her 90s, she's being like brought into the harem as the most beautiful woman in the city. Think about like in her prime, right? This was clearly genetically an unusually attractive family line. So maybe, maybe from scripture, we can see this. But back to Genesis 39, the application of this passage normally is Joseph, his experience, beware sexual temptation, flee it, run, right? But today, I also find myself sympathizing perhaps even more with Potiphar's wife because she is 
confronted by the presence of someone and something, as she objectifies him, uh, that she just couldn't get away from, right? It wasn't out there in the world. She didn't have to like go to an adult bookstore or a movie theater or a brothel or a street corner. She didn't have to buy a magazine. No, it was in her house, mixed into her daily life all of the time, immediately accessible, no accountability. That is the world we live in now, is it not? Regular uninvited exposure to intense and even extreme sexual images and content. Not necessarily even that what you're seeking. It shows up in movies and in advertising. The algorithms on social media throw random sexualized images into your feed. They're like, oh, well, if it offended you, just flag it. You're like, well, my brain's been flagged. Thank you very much. Like, you can't unsee some of this stuff. Not that this is an excuse for sin. This is a challenging thing in our society right now. Her excuse was like, it's too hard. I can't help it. He's just too hot, right? I can't look away. And all the women are like, it's true. He can't. It's, that's not, that doesn't count as a, a valid argument, right? Sometimes in society, we'll be like, oh, well, women should dress differently, right? Because I, you know, now we can't help ourselves. No, you have been placed by God sovereignly in the time, in the place, in the culture, in the city, in the neighborhood, among people who dress, however they dress, you have been placed and you need to deal with what God has chosen for you. It is not an excuse. And the Bible tells us there is always, there's never a temptation that is so great that you can't overcome it, that there isn't a way out. God always provides a way out. The problem is though, because it is so pervasive, if you raise your eyes and you look upon that particular Joseph or Jezebel, whatever that thing is, um, it can get your brain. Like morphine, like heroin, like fentanyl, it can take you and you can get addicted. The Greek word for sexual immorality in the Bible is pornea, which is also the root word for pornography, so graphis, uh, inscribed. So uh, pornea that is inscribed, whether it's a carving, whether it is a uh, uh, chemistry on a, on a paper, like a photograph, or even photons on a, a display, digital pornea. Um, it used to be just strictly analog, biologically physical, but now we have this digital pornea. Um, and this is all forms of sexual, uh, sex, sexual immorality that is mediated digitally. So that could be hookup apps like Tinder. Uh, it could be sort of the weird prostitution uh, mistress type arrangements that OnlyFriends is now facilitating, or even like the stuff that's happening with crypto with like, have you guys heard of friends.tech? This is like very cutting edge stuff, but you can buy a token of like, a fam like your friend or even a famous person, and then you have direct access to them through like a chat room. So like if you're already really famous, you can make a lot of money, but if you buy in early, like if Taylor Swift ever gets one of these and you can get her tokens early, you'll be a bajillionaire because other people buy them and the price goes up. But of course, the adult industry is like, this is great, and they move in, right? This type of stuff, digitally mediated sexual immorality. But of course, there also is just the normal pornography sites that offer sort of a one-sided experience to be able to uh, crowbar your way into the medicine cabinet of your brain. Now, I don't see a ton of young people here today, but it has happened with September before where like young people are like, this is so interesting. And they go home and they Google all these words I've said. Don't do that. If you're a young person, talk to your parents. Do not Google any of this. It's very dangerous. Um, the advent of digital pornea was a watershed moment for uh, sexual immorality. If adult magazines are sort of like the, the morphine of sexual immorality, 4K pornography is the fentanyl. And we talked about this last year at length, but digital pornea 
Dwight's like, I want you to talk about uh, artificial pornea also, virtual pornea. Um, I was like, okay, so it's true. It doesn't stop digital. Like things are moving forward and we're seeing new things. This last stage is virtual pornea where sexual immorality is perhaps inscribed directly on your eye and on your brain and on your skin. And, and some of it is, it's artificially generated. And um, this presents new problems that we've never had before. And there aren't necessarily like really clear Bible verses addressing some of this technology. Last year, I'm probably going off camera. Last year, uh, when I was preaching on porn, I did spend a little time at the end trying to be like, so this will get worse and here's how. And like tried to paint a picture of like what's going to happen, almost like as an intervention. Like if you're on the porn train now, get off because it's only going to be moving faster. It's only going to get harder. Um, But I did not think that things would be progressing so fast. Um, Here's a quote from last year's sermon. So think about this. You know how YouTube suggests new content? based on what you, you know, it thinks you want to see. Like you watch one cat video and then it's like, here's another cat video. And he's on a Roomba riding around with a little hat and you're like, amazing, right? Unless you turn off your history, then they don't do that anymore. But this idea that algorithms will feed you what you want to see, well, in just a short time, most porn will be animated. It'll look 100% real, but it'll be made up and AI will be able to tell what it is that you want to see by monitoring your body and will auto-generate in real time something however horrifying that will maximize your stimulation and the resulting chemical high. And that, my friends, is the end game. So that was last year, October 2nd. None of us were probably aware, but six weeks prior to that, this thing called stable diffusion came out. Anyone know what this is? Stable diffusion, yes, and now there's like more of these things. These are AI image generators. You're like, show me a cat on a Roomba wearing a hat. Here are six, pick your favorite. We'll refine, right? Um, that, that was happening. So it's like, even as like, we're talking about the possibility of like AI generated porn, like that had already started and we didn't, most of us didn't realize and now we're much further into that. And then nine weeks after the sermon, chat GBT came out. Everyone has heard of this probably. These two technologies have put a wrecking ball through the creative industry, right? Hollywood is on strike. People are very worried for their jobs. Why? They should be. These things are almost free. It's just electricity and they're getting smarter and better and faster. May 20th of this year, Unreal Engine 5.2 came out allowing for unprecedented, hyper-realistic character and world generation, usually made for making video games, but it can just generate unbelievable things that are, look 100% real very, very quickly, almost in real time. Just this last month, I saw an NBC News article describing how AI uh, sort of sex chat, virtual girlfriend, boyfriend apps are on social media soliciting, looking for users. Taken together, all of these things, we are sort of sitting on this like technological powder keg. And when the adult industry fully deploys all of this stuff, as they are most certainly working on, um, it's just going to result in this like uh, explosion of, of content that is going to be overwhelming and totally custom. Finally, then, we add to this the immersion technology with virtual reality, VR, augmented reality, AR, and we get a whole host of new considerations. So in June of this year, Apple announced their Vision Pro mixed reality headset. I'm curious how many people have heard of this. You guys are a young crowd. Okay, more of you. Yes, this is coming out in the new year. There have been VR helmets before, right? AR helmets, HoloLens, all these different things, Oculus Rift. But this thing, Apple always goes above, right? And theirs is very fancy and very expensive, but it has cameras on the outside and on the inside, and it's watching your eyes. Makes it so when you look at something, you can go like this and select it. 
cool. But also, it's watching your eyes. <laughs> that is the baseline for being able to tell arousal, watching eye dilation. If you're wearing a smartwatch, it can read your O2 and your heart rate. It's everything that an algorithm needs to see what is working for you and to give you more of that. Now, Apple has not said that that's their intention. They definitely are not putting that in their marketing. But just saying, technologically, that is now possible. You're like, just going to jailbreak my Vision Pro, right? Connect it to this thing. Like, this, we're sitting on the, all of the pieces now. It didn't even take one year for all of this stuff to become real. So as I said last year, this is kind of game over uh, for us. For anyone who chooses to kind of like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in. I'm going to dive into that. Um, that we are, in a sense, under this sort of like, unless you go totally Amish and you dra- drop out of this like technological arms race that we're in, which is an option. You can do that. Um, we are Potiphar's wife living in the same house now with a artificial Joseph or an artificial Jezebel. Hot as the blazing sun, like it or not, and they will begin to solicit you. It may happen this year. This is the kind of thing that we're facing. You may be saying, Pastor Brian, this is even more depressing than last year's sermon. Where's the hope? You know, like, what are we supposed to be doing about this? Five things. You can write these down if you're taking notes. First, run. Flee. That's what you're supposed to do when the robots come for you, right? You're supposed to run. Now, Elon Musk says his robots are going to be slow and weak. He's like, you can take them. But have you seen those dogs that Boston Dynamic is making? For, like, the military? You're not going to outrun that thing. But seriously, though, flee, run. Uh, as Joseph did, flee sexual immorality, run so fast your clothes fall off, right? This isn't something you play around with. This is deadly serious, deadly serious. So take it seriously. Make choices now in the calm, in the cool, rational time, not in the moment of temptation, not in the moment of opportunity. I have made a personal choice never to own a VR headset. I'm not saying I wouldn't try it at the store or at a friend's house. I just don't want that technology in my house. Um, I just think that's not helpful. Um, other people have made the wise choice not to have the internet at home at all. They're like, I use the internet for work, at work. Other people have been like, I'm getting rid of my smartphone. I'm going back to a flip phone. These are real considerations that everyone in this room should think about. You should think about this. Doubly so if you are already wrestling with an addiction to this digital fentanyl of, of any sexual morality or pornography, like you're gonna have to cut deep into your lifestyle choices, just like someone who's trying to get off heroin. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard, and you're gonna have to make choices. Uh, towards that end, if you do have the internet at home, especially if you're a parent, but like anybody, like lock it down. You can Google uh, Family Shield DNS settings, and you can change them in your Wi-Fi router, Unless you're in Videotron, they may not let you. But you can change those, and it blocks a lot of stuff right at the router. You know, obviously, it doesn't work on your phone, but use the parental settings. Even if you're a grown man, use the parental settings and have somebody else have the password, right? Um, Use Covenant Eyes. It blocks additional things. It sends uh, screenshots to an accountability partner. If you are fooling around, like, they're going to call you. They're going to be like, bro, you know, or madam. This is not just a dude issue anymore, Right? I, our kids know we're surveilling everything and I can see what they're searching. I get email every day. Sometimes there's a blurry image. They're like, this is worry, worrisome. Oh, it's just Mr. Beast, right? Like, it's fine. But like, you know, just having this, you have to start making these choices. This is not a safe world. You're just swimming with sharks. You need to have a cage to be protected. But of course, um, these are all just ways that we flee. These are ways that we flee 
this digital danger, to create some distance, some margin, some, some space to be safe. But rules don't always help. If the heart wants this, you can figure it out. You know, there was a guy I was working with years and years ago, and he's like, I'm just going to give the computer power cable to my wife so when she goes to work and I'm home working at home, I don't have the power cable. Those power cables are super interchangeable. He just found another one, right? Like the body and the mind addiction wants what it wants. So what we really need is heart transformation. We need heart transformation. That only comes from King Jesus, that he is our king, can grant you freedom. He can change your heart, even give you a new heart, new desires, freedom. Jesus spoke this of himself, Luke 4, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus came that you might be free, not just free from your sin, which is important, not just free from the just wrath of God against your sin, very important, but also from the power of sin. Sexual immorality has a power over you, and it's hard to get free of, and yet Jesus can free you. He's earned that right through his death and resurrection. That all of the addictions and all of the pain and the suffering that you have caused to yourself and to others, Jesus can absorb that. He can take that. As his body was broken for us, he, we can be made whole. That is what he offers to us if we accept it as a free gift. I had my own season of wrestling with this, and it was very, very hard to get free. Education, learning about the chemistry, accountability, um, boundaries were all really helpful and necessary, but ultimately it was a gift from God that God just gets, sets you free. He made your brain. He can remake your brain. He can rewire you. So first, flee. Secondly, look to Jesus for total healing. Look to Jesus for total healing. And I know if you're in the midst of this now, I know it can be uh, hopeless. Uh, but we have had like something like 25 guys find total freedom through um, the Conqueror series that we run uh, in, our, in our church. And it's a bit of a starfish on the beach problem, like how many people, you know, how many starfish can you say? But for every one of those guys, it was life-changing to be set free. So there is power uh, to be set free. And this, again, is not just a man issue. We're trying to figure out how best to do this for women as well. But if you are interested in something like this, you're like, I need this, uh, talk with uh, Peter, and he can help connect you with when we do this again. Third, once you have fled, once you have been set free, don't use your freedom as an occasion for sin. Paul says this, Galatians 5, 13. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is very important for Christians to hear. You are free. You are very free. You've been set free by Jesus. And you can engage with the world and the world no longer makes you unclean in an Old Testament sense, right? But that we actually go and we bring light and cleanliness to the world. It's the opposite. It's Jesus walking in the crowd and the woman with the perpetual multi-year bleeding issue reaches out in faith and just touches the hem of Jesus's garment. And Jesus should have been made ceremonially unclean by that touch, but she was made clean. The power went the other way. That is the world we live in now. If you are on team Jesus, that is the power and the calling that you have to be making clean. That we go out as salt and light. But as we do this, salt needs to go into like rotten places. Light needs to go into dark places and that prevents like a, a danger for us. You need to do so wisely. I'm a huge fan of the Red Frogs harm reduction program. I'm not probably gonna go like personally serve in an event where people are like not wearing enough clothes. Know your limits. 
right? For you, it's like, maybe don't go as a missionary to that party with your old friends if you're, it's gonna be hard for you to navigate some of those temptations, right? Know your limits. Uh, because fourthly, remember that we have an enemy. This is not just you in like a binary choice of like, I'm gonna choose the right thing. I'm gonna resist temptation. I'm gonna flee. There's also an enemy there waiting to trip you, to whisper in your ear, to lie, you, lie to you and trick you, a sentient being uh, that has been assigned to you for this. One that whispers in our ear and seeks the teeniest foothold, the teeniest little micro compromise. And so we have to practice micro fleeing. That's Joseph. He's like, I'm not even going to look up. I'm not even going to engage. He fled at that level. And this is where we start to end up sinning in our freedom. We don't mean to, but bit by bit, we make these little compromises. So we need to remember that there's an enemy that's doing that. And digital and artificial and virtual pornea offer a whole bunch of new gray areas where we're kind of like, is this okay? Is this not okay? And it gives new opportunity for our enemy to whisper to us. A couple of gray, like here's, a, here's something you may hear. AI-generated images. Enemy says in your ear, it's not porn. It's not real. They're just drawings. No humans were trafficked. This is a very moral form of this kind of content. It's not really that bad, right? It's an insidious lie. AI altered images. Already using filters on social media, you can make yourself look really old. You can make yourself look younger. You guys know about this. You've used these things. Yes, hilarious. Um, Is it okay for a wife to use a filter like that to just pretty herself up a little bit make herself maybe a little bit more symmetrical, a little bit more fit, and send that to her husband. Is that okay? Or on the far end of the extreme, husband and wife are like, let's use these AR kits. We can modify each other's bodies in real time in the bedroom for fun. That sounds fun. Is that helpful? (laughs) Is that a good thing? Um, One of the challenges that has been posed uh, by this is, is our freedom as we explore these areas that are not addressed specifically by scripture, we have to ask, is this good? Is this helpful? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, right? In our freedom, we shouldn't just do anything. So maybe some weird variation of the above is permissible in terms of like a mild alteration of your appearance, because there is no Bible verse that says thou shalt not mildly modify your appearance for your spouse's enjoyment. We do it all the time on date night, do your hair. I do what hair I, you know, have, you know, wear a shirt that has buttons and candlelight. All these things modify your appearance, right? Um, There's nothing explicitly wrong with that, but is, you know, like there's a line, right, of where you're like, this is no longer helpful. People who are regularly modifying their appearance on social media now are reported to have extreme anxiety meeting people in real life. Why? They do not look like that in real life. Now you have a crisis. Do not bring that into the bedroom. That is unhelpful, I would say. Now, some of you, if you're new or you're visiting with us and you're like new to the church thing, Christian thing, you're like, wow, you guys are really prudes. You're really worried about a lot of things, a lot of sexual things. There's a sin under every sexual rock. Um, Back it down, right? And that's not a bad question to ask. Historically, as a church, we have struggled in this area sometimes. Catholic church is like, no sex on Wednesdays. Why? And Fridays, you know, like, why? You know, like, why are you doing this? Um, And there was a thing back in the day, purity culture. This is reaching back. This was when I was a teenager. It was the height of it during my teenage years. Promise rings, 
I Kiss Dating Goodbye book. It's familiar to any of you, the older people. Yes, getting a hand. Um, yeah, so like there is a danger and even a potential toxicity to things like purity culture. Um, and it affected me. I, I had stuff I had to work through because of that. Um, here's where it goes wrong. Purity culture calls for a desire for holiness and purity, which is really good and admirable and right, but also includes a false promise of what author Andy Steiger calls a sexual Disneyland after marriage. That if you hold out in purity, uh, that the reward afterwards is sort of a nuclear detonation of sexual fulfillment in marriage. And um, Dwight actually alluded to this problem without stating it explicitly in the very first sermon, if you listen carefully. And he's like, a generation of Christians have weird sexual issues now that have manifested uh, because of this in their expectations. The, the reality is that sex in marriage can be complicated and require work. People who have been here have been married for a while. They, they know this. It is not Disneyland. It is more like Ikea. You get home, you open it up, there's lots of parts, you're not sure what they're all for. Sometimes it can be frustrating, right? But if you work at it, you can make something beautiful. But you can't get frustrated. Don't deviate from the instructions or cut corners. And I'm sorry for that analogy. Some of you will never be able to shop at Ikea again. Um, what I'm getting at is that sexual holiness, which takes hard work, must be pursued before and after marriage. Getting married does not just make all of this easy does not make all of it just sort of perfect. Um, that means perhaps not chasing the highest high in the marriage bedroom. Not feeling owed this huge Disneyland experience and being frustrated with your spouse or angry with God. Why is it hard? Why is it complicated? Why isn't it the way that I felt like it should be or I was promised it would be? Not using your spouse to try to replace or trigger the chemistry that pornography has triggered for you in your uh, addiction to sort of like abusing those drugs. Your spouse cannot and should not be used for that. Not to be frustrated and take something that isn't for you. Adam and Eve's rebellion was to take something they thought they deserved and God was holding out on them, right? And you're like, I deserve this. I'm going to take it anyway. We have to face that same choice every day in how we express ourselves sexually within marriage or within singleness. We need to pursue sexual holiness on both sides of that coin. So wrapping this up. Okay, so for married folks who are, who are expected to be you know, biblically sexually active, I'm sure for some of you, you're like, you have introduced some gray area with some of these technology things. I don't fully understand. The lines aren't clear. Does technology have a place in the bedroom or not? I, I can't tell you what to do exactly in every situation. I can't anticipate what new weird gray areas will be introduced by technology. Please do not come up to me after and ask specific questions. Uh, um, but what I would recommend, and this is, as Paul says, like from me, not from the Lord, what I would recommend, although when Paul says it's still scripture, but I would recommend is fleeing any kind of di digital intermediation in your marriage, in the bedroom, fleeing any form of digital intermediation don't involve other people, obviously, virtual or real. Um, don't alter each other digitally. It's probably just not helpful in the long run. Instead, ask God for help. As Dwight said, sex is a part of God's design and godly sex gives God glory and he is for you. Ask for healing, help, and direction. He is able, and this is a good gift that he gives to us in the midst of marriage. 
If you are still single, as many of you are, flee this. Run. (laughs) Flee sexual immorality and ask for protection and wisdom and give no quarter to the enemy who hates you and wants to see you destroyed. Uh, If you desire a spouse, ask the Lord for a spouse. Spouse is a good thing. And the Lord uh, delights in providing. And these things are easy for him. But remember that it doesn't fix everything. And if you're a human being, get into a change group. Change groups is something that we do. Uh, Two or three men, two or three women. A life-on-life discipleship, keeping each other accountable. Studying scripture. That's where we do Bible study in our church is at that level. You can go to church21.ca slash change. And there's information on how to do that. You can speak with Peter also about getting connected into a change group. And if you are chemically addicted to any form of sexual immorality, up including to uh, pornography, get help. We offer groups, as mentioned before, and um, helping guide men and women out of sexual addiction. Talk with Peter. Finding freedom isn't easy, but it can be found. Galatians 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Even if you looked at porn this morning, and statistically, there's an excellent chance that that is true. Even if you and your wife sinned sexually in some way last night by introducing something outside of your marriage into the bedroom, come to Jesus. Jesus is the one place where you can find freedom and healing. Now, if you haven't already given your hearts to Jesus, if you haven't made Jesus your savior and your king and your treasure and, and embrace that free gift, I would invite you to do that. He offers that to us. That is the main thing. Don't worry about anything else that I've said this morning about sex, all this stuff. Worry about your soul and receiving the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers you because he can and he will connect you with the Father. And the Father is ultimately who we want to be connected with. That is what we want. We are designed for beauty and majesty and pleasure. That's why we pursue these things. And God is beautiful and majestic and offers us pleasure forevermore. Not a sexual pleasure. C.S. Lewis says it's like something higher, something better that we can't comprehend. And this pleasure is not leading to depression and death, but to joy and to life. This is what we really want. This is what we're pursuing English author Graham Greene uh, famously wrote that any man who knocks at the door of a brothel is looking for God. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we, what we're really looking for in all of this is God. And we need to go through Jesus to find him. So we're going to pray to Jesus now towards this end. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you uh, did not stay in heaven God the Son, that you did not stay in heaven, but you entered into humanity, you entered into physical state as a human, that you endured temptation as we endure temptation. You are close to us in our suffering, and yet you live the life of perfect holiness. You, you live the epic, perfect life that none of us even get close to, and you gift that to us. You take our broken life, you give us your perfect record so we can stand with the Father Jesus, we thank you for this. And again, I just ask, Spirit, that you would be present, that if this is good news to anyone in the room, uh, that you would free their heart so that they can accept it. Remove spiritual blocks. Remove the whispers of the enemy that even now speak lies, that the enemy would have no place in this room. And as we respond um, to this good news, uh, that you would be present with us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.